0: Thank you. Riding the garage. i Corey Cope. I'm Michael Nuri. Hey. No, no, I'm not. Are you Chris Sarandon? No, no.
1: Okay. Gere.
0: Jack Skellington. No. Jack Shea. Number three in Boys of Summer, and you already know what it is. So you, you probably know how excited we are to talk about this one. Um, how this is going to be a big fat 180 from our last two. Like, um, but definitely the 180 after the previous. Most previous one because that was, I think we're still both. I'm still kind of like even after hearing the cut episode, I'm like, dude, I I couldn't even listen
1: to the episode. I disliked the movie so much. I I, I was like, oh, it just.
0: We got good feedback on it, by the way. It was like even though from from people that really enjoy the movie, knowing that we didn't like it, they said we were pretty we're pretty fair about it. We had we had reasons to support why we didn't like it anymore, and we usually do, but it was you and I kind of felt like we were so rough on it. And when it turns out we really weren't at least for the general audience, but that's the part where I kind of, when I'm, I listen to it and I think, oh, this is how I felt after we're done chatting about it. And then when I'm editing it, I feel differently. I'm like, oh man, we were really rough on it. And then when I listen to the final, it's like, it's again, it's a new experience. And I'm I'm like, oh, I still feel the same way. I still feel like we were both a little rough on it, but because we didn't like it. But I, but I thought, I still think we were fair to it. Our opinions came across well and, and they were supported. So we didn't sound, we were just, you know, dropping trowel on the movie, so which is which is nice to hear because I thought we did. <laughs> I thought we were real uh, rough on yeah, it. Yeah,
1: I mean, just like think, it was not even, it's just not, the episode's fine. It's just, but just listening to it, it just made me think about the movie again. And then go, <laughs> oh. It's right. just something I don't, you know, it's something I will never, ever watch again.
0: No, I'm right there with you. But, but we don't have, we're done, we're moving on. We're, yeah, we've got to move on. We're on episode three. We're in week three. We're in week three. Boys of Summer. Yep. So the great thing about this one, unlike the other two where our Boys of Summer was, our boy of summer was the lead of the movie. This one is true also, but this is also, a, has an, a, another cue to it. And that is Steven Spielberg is considered a boy of summer too. So it's like two boys this summer. Two boys this summer. And there's this may or may not be the only one that's like that in the series this month. Could be. Could be. (laughs) We have been talking about this one. God, even before we covered Total Recall Remake with, ironically, Colin Farrell, who was in both movies. not playing the same guy, of course, but both movies based on short stories from Philip K. Dick, again, which we talked about in Total Recall Story. And I got reminded when I was kind of going through stuff, I'm like, oh, that's right. I remember how this was supposed to be um, a sequel to, to the Total Recall from, from was it 1990?
1: for Hoven 1990, no?
0: 1990, yeah. So, but this one really upped their game because Steven Spielberg is doing it. And so like, well, what do we need? We need, we need a lot for this movie. We this need movie. a
1: movie star. We need the movie star is what they needed in this movie. And they got him.
0: They got him. this is the this is the first time that Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg work together. Um, they'll work together three years later on War of the World's remake. But this we talked about this yesterday uh, in text form. This movie may be top five, maybe even top three for for both the star and the director.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: For a movie that we've covered that's 20 years after its release. I think this is the one that I'm like, you know what? I really love the shit out of this movie. And I was worried that knowing that going into it, I'm like, fuck, do I, do I like it too much? Is it still a nostalgic thing for me? Is, you know what I mean? But no, it, I think I might like it better than my memory served. I think it's really fucking good across the board. Again, Tom Cruise with a gaggle of supporting players that are just. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oddly, I just watched, I think, in January or February I was when I was in Atlanta, just during my downtime. I, I just put it on and watched it, thinking, oh, yeah, I just got to put something on to chill and maybe go to sleep. And, of course, you, you don't go to sleep while you watch Minority Report. And no. Just saying. And, dude, this is like, for me, this is like that sweet, sweet period for Cruz, where he was just like, fucking dude, every movie he opened. I mean, it threw, like him, love him, hate him, whatever your deal is— he's a movie star. He's yep. probably the last movie star. He's he's the last yep. star we're going to have
0: like this. Yep.
1: And uh the dude can open a movie, man. Yep. I mean, even now. Yep. Still. Yep. Right? Like last year, like the biggest movie ever of the year was you know Tom Cruise at 60 still doing it.
0: I never would have imagined Maverick doing what it did. And not just because of the weirdness of our theatrical experience and because of COVID, But I even fifteen years ago, when they've been talking about making a sequel Top Gun, I'm like, it's been too long. You think it's been too many years? You can't do it now. Even the even at the fifteen year point, it was too many years. I'm like, you guys, it's too long. And I saw it, and as much as I, my my opinion doesn't matter. The point is, is that he can open the movie, and that movie did fucking huge dollars, huge dollars. And I remember when Paramount was juggling things around, like juggling that around, juggling the Mission Impossible release around, the dates, you think like, oh man, you just keep pushing your audience away. I kept thinking was, that was going to burn them. And it did the opposite. I Again, it made money that I never thought it would have made. But 60 years old and the dude can still open a movie. He's got another, you know, he's got two more he's parts. He's got another
1: Mission Impossible. It's yeah. like he never went away. That's no. the thing, right? Yeah. It's like- you know, there was no like, oh, hey, what happened to Tom Cruise? And then, you know, right. there's no comeback. Oh, hey, this is his comeback for me. He's never None. gone. I mean, it, dude, it's 40, almost 40 years of of Tom Cruise right. being in fucking big A-list movies that they do what they do. You know, say what you want about the guy. You, you can like him or not. But his his track record, pretty flawless, dude. I, yeah. I've, I, I try to see all of his movies in theater. If, if I may, if, if they're being released, I've, and I want to say, if I go through this list right now, there's going to be very few that I didn't see in a theater.
0: And his choice, he has the pick of the litter, right? Uh, of whatever yeah. he wants to do. And you, you think he'd have a misstep. And I thought like uh, something like night and day, I thought that was going to be a misstep. And then I see it on HBO and I'm like, why the fuck didn't I see this in a the theater? This is such a great, fun time. Again, he usually doesn't play a, a character as flawed as John Anderton is. Right. He usually plays somebody that, yeah, I got this little thing here and there, but that's always been brought on by somebody else. But no, he's dealing with the loss of his child. He's drugging up. You know, it's like he, there's so many things about him that are his character, John Anderton, that he just like, this is such a different role for him. Before this did he ever play a, a had a role where he plays a father? I don't think um, I don't think so. I, I mean obviously in War of the Worlds but that's 3 years later.
1: Well, there was kind of Jerry Maguire. I mean he wasn't yeah. he wasn't raised father but you know I think that was a that, that was the first time we saw kind of saw
0: that sort of side of him. No, but yeah, but, but okay, so I, I'm with you there. So, but that there, there's a good point—a reluctant father. There, he wasn't. That was that he just kind of the kid came with the territory, as opposed yeah, to with, yeah. But the, you know, with this though, as soon as I start talking about him being a father, and you start talking about him being a husband, and then your man your mind starts going to other people in the cast who you don't necessarily see right away. Tom Cruise. Like you noted, is gonna is the last movie star we're gonna have, and like you noted, he didn't go away. And you've all seen the new, the trailer for the new movie, the new Mission Impossible movie, the motorcycle. Well, in between COVID, you know, then being able to shoot because of being shut down, they were rehearsing that big stunt for months. He kept he had the crew. The crew was being paid. He he made sure everybody was getting paid because he knew that this wasn't their fault. Um, and that's why he got so angry at that one point, right? <laughs> when he was there making a movie and people weren't being compliant with, with COVID and everything. And then he he says, if I get sick, the whole thing gets shut down and everybody's livelihood gets affected. And it was just, he, he's just, like he said, it isn't just him being an old, you know, a, a real fashion movie star, but he's a filmmaker that produces and he understands the whole system. And that's why yep. everything he chooses does well in a theater. It opens just like this movie did, and he he's been such a sponge to all the people he's worked with, director wise, because he
1: director actor dude. I mean, I'm saying probably the time he spent with Paul Newman when he was a young man. Oh yeah, you know,
0: yeah. His film choices are almost, even though he does, he worked a lot more than than Newman, obviously, <laughs> in the '80s and '90s, but when you look at Newman at his peak and Tom Cruise at his peak, they have very similar movie choices. They're very particular about what they mm-hmm. chose, oh, and yeah. and but the the things that they do always stand out. Like when you go look at Paul Newman's IMDb, we, we, you and I were just doing this before uh, in regards to Spielberg. We're going down the IMDb list of of his movies over the last 25, years, 25 30 years. But you do the same thing with Paul Newman, and sometimes you see movies like, what the fuck's that movie? What's that movie? What's that movie? And then when you watch them, I don't remember them, but they're gems. They're always yep. so good. But yeah, Tom knows how to pick the right things by the edge of tomorrow. It doesn't feel like a Tom Cruise thing, but it, but also at the same time, it feels like a safe choice. But when you see the movie, man, that's not an easy movie to film. And we talked about that in the episode. It's so good. And it just solidifies the man picks the right material. He knows yeah, how he excels. He knows, and that's another thing too. We talked about during the mummy. He's one of those guys that understands and works well with the camera guys too. He understands like what, what lens are we use in here? Cause he knows if it's this, what kind of lens it is, how he's going to be framed in the shot. It, he doesn't have to look at a storyboard. You tell me it's a 50 based on the camera position. He knows where he's at in the frame. He doesn't have to go to video village to look. He understands. Anyway, that's right. I crossed the board. The dude knows about filmmaking A to Z and then, but he's smart about, could he direct? He probably could. Oh, well, he does direct. He just doesn't. But it's not the obvious, sure. the obvious. I'm, I am sitting down from the beginning and I'm directing this. Put the camera here. I'm
1: going to walk in here, spray some, you know, spray me down. I want to look sweaty. I'm going to like, I'm going to reach down to pick this up. I want the camera to like focus on my bicep. It's going to bulge a little bit. Yeah. Like, kids love that shit.
0: Yeah. I think The Mummy is the one we kind of leaned on that most, where it was most yeah. prevalent, where you think, okay, you know, beyond the collaborative aspect of filmmaking. And, and uh, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Boys of Sum- Boys of Summer is about opening a movie and his history of opening movies. Yeah. I think out of everybody on our list is probably the... Oh, yeah, dude. He's by far... Billions, billions and billions of dollars of box office business, this guy. But I think this is still probably his most unique role because, again, like I mentioned, he plays a flawed character in a way that goes beyond the usual protagonist situation, right?
1: Well, there's layers to his performance. Oh, yeah. There's layers to it, you know? And, and, and again, they do a really good job of sort of keeping, you know, keeping the secret right? until, because you're never really sure. Why is he running? What is the deal?
0: The thing about pre-crime and the whole setup of the movie is... But you're thinking about it. Yeah you you know you're done as soon as they and you're unsuspecting too like that's the one that's the advantage he's got other than our one and only time that we get to see pre-crime being carried out is when Ari Gross is going to kill his wife for having an affair right that moment is so well executed from the moment they're going through the precog visions and the execution of it and and not only is it our first time seeing the whole the precog, pre-crime being carried out, we see how flawed it is. It's nice because you took probably two scenes and put them into one. There were In other movies with a less of efficient director, you would have seen it like that. You would have seen pre-crime event happen in perfect execution, and you would have seen one that had problems. And they just said, fuck it, let's put it in one shot because it's already a long movie. There's no reason to do it in two different things. So you get the taste of it right away and it's a, it's a big fat bit of foreshadowing, but you don't realize it yet. You don't realize how much foreshadowing is really going on there with, with the flaw in the system, but like everything else in, in the legal system, even now, I guess it was a little, a little bit of a, a political statement being made there too, is that the system is flawed across the board, no matter now or in the distant future. So
1: Yeah, what's crazy about this, uh, I guess it's kind of, it's it's, you know, it it lends itself to the, I think we probably talked about this, the Total Recall episode, but, you know, the Philip K. Dick, just the sort of, there's a theme that runs sort of through his stories. And that's another reason why this movie ties in so well, because you're being, you know, you're seeing pieces of memories and, you know, and again, memories are never the same for everybody, right? Like, right. so you don't really know what you're watching. It does a really good job of keep you guessing. I mean, and the fact that, you know, these guys who are chasing him, they've all worked side with, side with him, and they have great respect for him. But because of the way the, the whole pre-crime thing works is they got to bring him in. <laughs> it's movie. It's funny, like watching it, like I didn't realize how many parallel. I, I felt like there were a lot of parallels to like the first Matrix in this movie. Like there's the scene with the, in the uh, greenhouse right. with the plants. Right. You know, After when she's like, you better drink this tea, otherwise you're going to drop dead. Right. <laughs> but she's very much like the Oracle, right? She's sort of giving us exposition, but we're, we're, we're glad to take it because it's told in an entertaining, sort of interesting setting. And and she's great,
0: man. Oh, yeah. Lois Lois Smith is fantastic in this play. Yeah. Dr. Iris Heinemann. She's great. I think at this point people have seen this. So I, I, I wanted to like... Lean on that for a little bit, because you you brought it up when we were off mic. That scene is such a sweet moment, too, because she's just so, you can see the effects of being a recluse that she is. Yeah. She's just kind of like, oh, so casually, oh, yeah, you're going to die if you don't let me make this tea for you it's such a, it's such a like sweet old grandmother moment where she just, she's, she's like Sophia on Golden Girls. She's just kind of like telling it like it is I'm like, this is, you, you, well, you're going to die if you don't do this. You're having, oh, that was a great too. You're having quite a week. Right. Mr. Anderton. Isn't that weird though too? That the- Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that, 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 that line is what made me, I was like, holy
1: fuck It's She's like the Oracle and she's just dropped, you know? Yeah. In The Matrix, the Oracle, the woman who played the Oracle, is dropping, you know, basically exposition on you. But the way that they go about using it, it's it's, you know, it's a great way. And and they're doing the same thing here. And like I think I said before we jumped on is the setting, you know, there's a lot of homages to other films in here. And, you know, this moment literally put me right into the original Manchurian Candidate right the tea party you know and the drugged soldiers
0: <laughs> being brainwashed and it doesn't feel forced too you know you no. know you you get, you understand it's exposition but it's done with such a soft hand like you just accept it i'm like oh okay that's all right because i mean that's the thing is like the expositional dialogue to the point where it's it's noticeable that it's expositional dialogue it didn't start that way it was always there to kind of to yeah, you know, tell about the audience is something that you can't possibly see. You gotta without to fill in the blanks. Right. But it grew out to be this thing that's just kind of like obviously spoofed in great detail these days. Like I said, a deft hand at work there or it doesn't ever feel like it's expositional, but it is. But not in a negative way, like <laughs> like it's become over the last forty years. And again, like you mentioned, Lois Smith, but it goes to the the the, the casting choices and this across the board. Oh yeah. Well, first of all, the pre-crime cops that you have there around them. Neil McDonough is one of them who is, as you noted, <laughs> rarely playing not a dick bag. Right. When when yeah, exactly. <sighs> Obviously, a very close friend to to John Anderton. You've seen the moment in the alley, and yeah, you know, I'm not taking anything away from anybody by talking about this it in the trailer, even if you hadn't seen the movie, and that's the whole thing, right? The what's the headline in the newspaper when you see Cameron Coe's cameo on the subway and. Anderton's already on the run. It says precog chasing their own or something that you know or something of that effect. It's weird because you don't ever see that headline because the whole point of precog is from the scoop in there before nothing, anything ever happens. So nobody ever's on the run, right? But he, again, we were like we were starting to touch on earlier. He's on the run because he knows he's fucked. He knows his bullshit. The, the okay, now let me ask you something. So the movie's called Minority Report because. The report is, it's if one of the three precogs see something differently.
1: Correct. They're the minority.
0: They're the minority. Yep. When you think about a minority report, you keep thinking of something written or something like that. So when I I go, like when when they gave you the expositional in the movie, it's like, oh, right. Yeah, of course. So that's this whole thing. That's why he's, this is bullshit. I would never, I, I wouldn't have killed anybody i i don't have anybody to kill i don't don't even know who this fucking guy is whatever but he runs just because he knows eventually if he gets caught he's just they're just going to string him up and put him in the in the ground like we saw at the beginning of the movie with ari gross we we know what we know what happens to him and he so does he and he goes and if i don't figure this out i'm going in the ground like everybody else yeah speaking of going in the ground one of the fun smaller pieces to the cast on this is Tim Blake Nelson playing the prison guard in Pre Crime. Dude, he's so perfect in that. He,
1: oh, see, that, I, this is what this is the only part we're going to disagree because he's my <laughs> o- he's the only thing that bugs the shit out of me in this movie because he it's it's like Jim Carrey from the Cable Guy. It, I don't know. He just seems so like it, it. It's a moment that it's the only moment in the movie that like kind of rings false for me is like him.
0: I think it says something about the class of our society at that time for the guy from Tulsa, Oklahoma to be stuck working at the jail. That's how I kind of took it. I took it a little more as a, a statement about class. Yeah. I'm sure
1: there's an explanation for it. It's just literally, it, it, it kind of with, it just doesn't gel with everything else for me. I
0: I understand why you'd feel that way. I was
1: just looking at it and I was just going to like say, you know, the only thing in this movie uh, that rings false for me in there, but, uh, but again, he, I like him more the second time we see him than the introduction to him because he, kind, I don't know. It just seems sort of, you know, it's, it's a little act really for me at the fir- when we first, his introduction, you know, the movie's like already in motion and it's set up and then it just takes like this weird, I'm like, what, where is this performance <laughs> come from?
0: <laughs> now we, we burped out his name early on. Colin Farrell is in this playing Danny Whitware from, yeah. from the department of justice. And he's there to investigate pre-crime cause he's, he he thinks there's something going on with it.
1: What, what, I, what I think is great is the way that he sort of, you know, he, he's, this is a young Colin Farrell, this is at the beginning, and and he holds his own, dude, in his scenes with
0: Cruz. 100% agree.
1: I mean, there's like no fear. Like, it's like, you know, there's no stage fright. I mean, he, again, he's doing his thing. It's funny, too, because you're not sure. I don't know if it's because of the other movies I'd seen him at this point. I wasn't sure when Colin Farrell showed up. I expected him to be a bad guy. Right. And in, uh, and up until the moment where, you know, he meets his fate, I was like, it, it was a genuine moment. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, holy shit, you know, right. th- this movie does a really good job of sort of keeping you guessing and, and this oh, yeah. sort of serpentine storytelling. And you're never really sure, you know, who's who or what's what until, you know, until they want you to be right. And, and you know, cause you know, the worst thing for a movie like this is figuring it out. Right. right. Like, right. 30 minutes in, you're like, oh.
0: And and you're not even trying. It's just there. It's just presented to you. The masterclass in Misdirection with Colin Farrell's character is just tremendous. And And every time I watch the movie since I saw it the first time, and I watch how well Spielberg crafts this thing around he's the bad guy. Colin Farrell is the guy that's setting him up. You know, it's just that you feel like that because time cop has a very similar vibe too. that. It's just, he's being in the fugitive in the fugitive. Right. And you, you have that, these guys that are, that, you think are the antagonists, but they're not. They end up being allies, or, right. or, or allies, or they're they're neutral, or they're sympathetic. Or, yeah, they're, or or they're just flat out neutral, and they just because they have it like Tommy Jones, like Tommy Fugitive.
1: Jones, right? That that's kind of like what Colin Farrell's character is close to, right? Is, right. is Sam Gerard from the
0: Fugitive, right? It's like it's hard to it's hard. Like we started talking about the movie, like to overlook people in it. Now, but there's one thing in this movie that you would, that you're just kind of like, oh, come on, we're talking about the casting. You got to know Max Van Saito is the bad guy, right? You have to know that. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, it's like, uh,
1: but again, he's Max Van Saito.
0: Right. And they do such an amazing job with, with the Colin Farrell character that you're just like, oh, wait. Yeah. It seems on the nose but at the same time it doesn't seem on the nose. I like well, there's
1: right you got Neil McDonough who you right. usually see as a bad guy. You got Farrell. So I mean I, again they do a nice job of misdirection in this movie because Max Vincito should be your first, you know, he's the you know, if you're in your lineup of the usual suspects if you will. Right. <laughs> Max Vincito is always going to be the bad guy.
0: Also, when is Patrick Kilpatrick not playing a guy that's you know, out yep. to out to get you. He's always me, right.
1: <laughs> they really, I mean, it's funny because they kind of cast people against type, and, and it really, really works. And oh,
0: so effective, yeah. Uh,
1: Do Samantha Morton is fucking great as Agatha. I mean, yeah. Do what a what a tough role to play too. Yeah. Like, and and this is early on in her career as well. Uh, like across the board there's not a bad performance. I no. mean, I'm just, ta- I'm just down to even people who have one or two scenes. I mean, the, the whole pre con, the pre crime cop team with the exception of, of one, <laughs> who I'm not going to say, right. but if you uh, see the movie or if you want to look it up on IMDb and look at those pre crime cops, you're going to laugh because right. uh, it's funny. And, and I will say, it, uh, dude, I had no idea that Frank Grillo was in this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it literally stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> like when I, I was like, what? I had to stop it and you get a glimpse of him there's a standout performance in this movie mm-hmm. and I think you know where I'm going with this mm-hmm. it's Peter Stormare, yeah as Dr. Solomon Eddie,
0: yeah <laughs> the guy who gives him his eyes it's, he's so fucking great and I love the way he's carried character-
1: coming out of his neck dude just, it's so good. when he's
0: like and he starts talking about sanity, how sanitary your thing is it's just it's so good there are moments of levity in this movie that, that wouldn't work if it wasn't being performed by somebody like Steven Spielberg. Right. It just it would have just been too much. And you do get those Spielberg moments like right during the alley scene where Anderton's on the back of one of the guys and they end up bouncing around inside one of oh, the yeah. apartments and, make, and then they hit the ceiling and then everybody's table on the floor above them at the dining room table will like bump up. That's such a Spielberg moment, but it never feels out of place. You you right. chuckle at it when it happens, even 21 years later. And it's like, oh, Spielberg. You know, it's like one of those things you don't, it's, you just kind of go with it. It doesn't feel forced. It's just his thing. He just, it's just his calling card to put those little moments in there because this is not a movie that he would have done, you know, 10 years earlier in his career when he was still... You know, when he was very Amblin esque, this is the-
1: well, yeah, and when he was, I feel like this was kind of a departure from historical, yeah, which he kind of goes in and out of, right? Like right. The, if you look at the, you know, the arc with the arc of his career, like his career sort of goes from these sort of popcorn like Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders, and then you know, then he gets into the, you know the color purple, and he does he does these historical sort of people's stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to give you my top three cruise movies right now. Number one, Born on the 4th of July,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> because I've never seen Tom Cruise do anything like that right. ever again. Number two, I am a big fan of The Firm. <laughs> right. I know it seems like, really? The Firm is like your Tom Cruise movie? It's not. Days of Thunder is probably my second favorite Tom Cruise movie. The Firm is in the top 10, uh, but I would put Minority Report at three. Yeah. Top three. The, the, those are my three. Uh, you know, I know Days of Thunder is kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah, I know it's Top Gun and Race Cars, but, you know, I saw it in the theater at a very, you know, interesting time in my life. And uh, I, lo- I love Days of Thunder. I think it's great. It's probably one of Tony Scott's sort of un- underrated films as well. Yeah. Cruise is great. And it's in, again, the, that's the thing about Tom Cruise. There's so many good movies. It's really hard. Like, I think I texted you. <laughs> mine's like a sliding scale. <laughs> right. On any given day.
0: Which struck up the conversation was you and I saying, like I said earlier in the episode, I think I might have said it. This is top, th- top five, maybe even top three for both. And yeah. when you had your moment there where you're kind of just sliding scale When I started looking at Spielberg, I go, you know what, man, you know, maybe not top three for him. I got to say top five, because as soon as you start talking about stuff, once you hit Jaws and to me and Jaws and ET puts him, puts minor report at three, but I'm like, I know there's something else that would fit in there before that. Yeah. Yeah. But from the transitional point of where he did a shift away from Amblin stuff and even, you know, the early on DreamWorks was very much that, I don't want to say that preteen move into, uh, into non amblin movies, it took him a while to kind of adjust to making movies that were a little, little less his wheelhouse.
1: Well, it's hard, dude, with somebody like Spielberg to yeah. like, you know, to that's what I'm saying. It's a sliding scale. I mean, right. look, like, you're talking about Jaws,
0: right. Raiders, right? So there, yeah, that's the three right there. Boom, one, boom, 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 and it's. But
1: then there's things like Schindler's List. Uh, I'm a giant fan, dude. I love Empire of the Sun.
0: Love it's, it. it's great. And again, it's not, it's, it's one of those movies that it's very much a departure for him.
1: Right. This what I'm saying. It's a sliding scale. There's, there's, there's so much material. Like the, the you know, he, the, he's a director, like Cruz is an actor who, you know, they pick their projects really right. well. There are times when I, you know, I listen to people and they, you know, they'll go on about Spielberg and how, you know, yeah, you know, it's soft, uh, you know, I'm not saying I love all of them. I mean, right. I think Minority Report is definitely his best movie since 2000. Like, oh, yeah. there's, there's a, but there's a lot, if you look at, he's <laughs> made a lot of movies since 2000 right. as well. Right. But I mean, Minority Report for me, like if you want to break his career into, you know, 20 year segments, <laughs> or 25 year segments right. out of the last 25 years, this is number one. Yeah. Followed by Bridget Spies and maybe Munich. Yeah. Uh, those three, like we talked earlier, but both these guys, speaking of boys of summer, has there been a time, dude, in my movie going lifetime where one of these two guys hasn't had a movie out in the summer?
0: It's rare. Especially for Spielberg. Like you talked about, he's done so much more work over the last 25, 30 years than he did in the right? first third of his career. Yeah. Look at the window of time where after Jaws, he didn't do a lot of stuff between that and E.T.
1: With the Close Encounters, 1941,
0: Raiders, mm-hmm. right? Those three, that's that's it, right? Just between, from Jaws until... Right, and then if you get to E.T., if you want to stretch it out to 80, 82, right? hmm That's still seven years. That's not... That's not a lot no. of movies for him, especially now. We we see him. He like he works at a decent clip right now. Honestly, we probably would have had one or two more movies right now in his catalog if it wasn't for COVID. Sure. And he knows. Like, this is this is one of those things I was talking about with somebody years ago when there's that window of what we're talking about here with Munich. That when that kind of like ended with Munich, but but Munich wore the world's this movie even catch me if you can. I poo-pooed that window of time. I'm like, what is he? Calvin, he's fucking remaking this. And this Minority report movie looks fucking stupid. There were so many things where I thought, uh, putting Spielberg and Cruz together, like, oh, it's going to be one of those things. It's not, I'm sorry. It's not going to be peanut butter and chocolate. This is not going to work like a Reese's peanut butter cup for me. I know it. And I, you know, cause, but I'm also not a filmmaker. And I'm like, of course it would. Here we are talking about it 21 years later and it's fucking gold. So I, I reminded myself that the, my sliding scale wasn't moving. It was still locked into uh, childhood ambling me where I'm like, this isn't made for me. I don't know who this is made for. You know, and it was one of those things. But then when I go back and watch all those movies, it's that thing we talked about before where somebody goes, all right, yeah, I didn't. Did I like that? Do I not like it as a Spielberg movie or, 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 or with somebody else directing this what I've been more accepting of it? You, you have that thing. I do anyway. I have that thing with his work where I'm holding I'm. It's my problem if I don't like something in his because I'm the one holding on to my childhood view of the kind of movies he should be making as if I have some kind of say in what he makes. But I'm just going to say, dude,
1: there are more Spielberg movies I like than ones I don't like. And, you know, it, right. for me, right? Like that's, you know, of course, you know, even your favorite directors, like even like, you know, there's Hitchcock movies I just don't like. At some point, somebody you know, there's, there's just going to be something that doesn't work. But I mean, you know, if I go through and I look just strictly at the movies he's directed, not the movies he's produced, because that's a whole other thing. Right. Boys of Summer, you know, there would be no Back to the Future without Spielberg. You know, right. what I mean, think about those things. What I would say, dude, in his miniseries, The Pacific and Band of Brothers. I mean, yep. those things are cool. There are more wins than losses. Oh yeah, if you will. When I look at his, you know across the board, there there are very few Spielberg movies that I that I've seen that I haven't liked. And then there's there's other ones that I haven't seen uh, just because they didn't strike me. Or you know, there's a couple that I saw that I'm you know. They're well-made movies. They're just they're just not for me. You know, I'm, I'm not even going to say what they are because it doesn't matter.
0: No, because we're
1: talking about minority report, right? <laughs> and I'm trying to stay on point, but we we're talking about the boys of summer, and these are the two boys in this movie. Yeah. We're we're not here to talk about you know to, to give detail about this. You know, this is the story of minority. Anybody can read the blurb, the, the synopsis right. on IMDb. Right. Um, what makes this movie great is you got these two guys working together for the first time. And they both know their ways around the blockbuster in a sort of a spectacle movie. And this movie is is dude, it's all spectacle. Oh yeah, they've created an immersive world. I mean, this thing holds up, man. Like you know, the whole them when when during the chase when he's running through the mall after they've after they've come and the you know the spiders have come and they've infiltrated the building and scared the kids to death. When he runs into the gap, dude, because usually like product placement kind of said, bug this. But the way it's all done right. is I'm, they're still feeding me all that product placement. And da-da, but it's done in a way that works with the story. And I got to say, man, for 20 years old, some of that stuff looks better than if you go into the gap now. <laughs> like if yeah. the gap looked that cool, I might go there.
0: When pre-crime police start storming this apartment building where Cruz has had his new eyes put in and he knows they're coming. Oh, dude, that whole fucking scene. That sequence is amazing. Yeah, it is. And when you see the new John Wick 4, they do this overhead thing that you see in this scene. I always forget that this is kind of where it was done with the with the veracity that was done was in this one where you got the camera above every floor while the spiders are going in there to scan the eyeballs of the people that live in the apartment building. And you're just basically the camera's just floating above all the flats and all uh, of all the rooms on in the building, and it's done such a unique way that, <laughs> and the casualness too of the, the the performers in there when the spiders come in there, like the couple that's in the middle of an argument. Oh, yeah. It, and they just stop because, you know, like, like this sure. isn't the first rodeo of them having nope. the spiders come in their skin. And their- the guy <laughs>
1: sleeping on the toilet. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's a, dude, I mean, they, they do a great job of keeping it fun and-, and, and yeah. it, but it doesn't ever like pull you away. Like, Oh, that was stupid. That was so it it, dude in that whole sequence of him holding his breath in the ice water. I mean, it's really fucking
0: that. And the great, again, a fucking master like Spielberg, somebody else doing the thing that leads up to that with the flashback. We've seen multiple flashbacks of John and his son. Oh Yeah. But to see the moment where he, where he loses him, where he just... And he just disappears, dude. He just is
1: fucking gone. Gone. Dude, the watch falls into the water, and he's like... And just the look on Cruz's face, like, oh, silly kid. And he comes up, and he's
0: gone. Because you always hear about somebody's going... I, You know, that, that, yeah. that cliche thing, I turned away for a second. And he and does. He's yeah. He's underwater, and he turns to look at a kid and smiles and swims by him. It's just like... You're just like, oh man, that was the moment he lost him and you're already feeling a certain way and then 45 seconds later he's hiding underwater now holding his breath again you're like for his life and it's like, fuck it's so good dude. yeah no no man
1: these two guys know which buttons to push and yeah. uh, after watching this, I think we were talking before, I may have to re-watch War of the Worlds and see if uh, the things that bugged me at the time of War of the worlds. Or if I watch it, you know, now, you know, fuck almost, I guess 20 years later, right? That movie came out in oh
0: five, Yeah, 2005. Same year, Munich. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, it's a movie that I need to go back and maybe maybe check out again because I, I feel like, I don't think it's a bad movie, but there were just certain things I was like, oh. Like
0: the- talk. Yeah, you and I talked about, you know, your qualms with it. And they're fair too because they're, they don't bother me as much, but they do. But I, I feel like you do. That's a little bit much. And, and you, you know, if we eventually cover it, I don't want to get into it. I want, I don't want to detail it yeah, no, out now. Either. But I'm with you though; it's better than you remember it. But the things that bother you are still pretty prevalent. It's still like I yeah, I saw, I'm I just sure. watched it recently because I got the 4K of it a few months back, maybe even further back, maybe a year ago, and it's gorgeous. And by the way, our friend Art ball is in it. Yay, Art! Is he? Yeah, he's he's in. Don't tell you know. Let me. I'm gonna rewatch it. I'll,
1: I'll yeah. find him because. You're going to tell me and then I'm going to be so concentrated on finding that I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be distracted from other things. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll just, uh, it's it's like discovering Jessica Capshaw in uh, Minority Report. Yes. Uh, it'll just happen organically.
0: Yes. K. Capshaw's daughter, Steven Spielberg's stepdaughter. It's funny too, because until you said something, we were just talking before we started recording, I'm like going, all right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and Clea
1: Scott shows up in this film as well, who I mostly knew from Millennium (laughs) with Lance Henriksen.
0: Oh, let's not... I don't want to not note this. Mike Bender is in this as well. And I didn't know he was in there. And even when you see the precog stuff of John killing this character, Leo Crow, you don't really get a good look at Bender and realize, like, is that Mike Bender? He's been... Again, he's, he's Leo Crow. He's the one that he's being accused of killing. And eventually he does. Uh, again, I, I, for spoilers to the free, I'm sorry. It's 21 years old. (laughs) Spoiler free. Not here, baby. I love Mike Bender a lot. He's obviously he's, he's a film director himself. He's done a lot of stand up. He does a little bit of acting here and there. Um, we've talked before about Indian summer. That was his, that was this first, his first movie as a director. Um, we talked about that one for a couple of reasons. And I think one of them was
1: Vincent Spano. Yeah. <laughs> Film starring Vincent Spano. Yes. Also who, there was somebody else's in it that was uh, in something that we've covered. Yeah. But yes. But
0: Bender's great in there because, you know, we've, we've witnessed in this movie, people that are so desperate for money that they'll let them scoop out their eyeballs. Yeah. And we see that from the guy that's doing the drug deal and that sells Andertons his, his drugs but we also see later on that the the eyes that he has were just for. <laughs> rediscover when he goes the gap what that what that character looks like, which I thought was really cool, because um, it's always such an anonymous thing, right? Dude, it's he, such a
1: weird thing running through these Philip K. Dick stories too, right? The eyes, I just make the eyes. <laughs>
0: yeah, and you get a whole big taste of that too in Total Recall, and not just yeah. not just the the Schwarzenegger one, but you get it a lot right? in the remake. Yeah. This one thing that's been most impressive is that most Philip K. Dick adaptations coming from his novellas and short stories, you just think that, is there enough there? And we have three classic movies, and in a lot of ways, you can say four, because we both really enjoyed the Total Recall remake, and it's because it's so different yeah. than the Schwarzenegger one, but like Blade Runner, there's your three movies, and oh, if you want with Minority Report thrown in there, both guys know what it takes to build a blockbuster knows what it takes to sell a blockbuster and knows what it takes to film it. And it's just like with Cruz being this, this uh, movie star that we're never going to get again, the guy that does anything for the sake of the project he's I mean, working on. Spielberg is a lot like that. He he has a work ethic. Oh, yeah, that, I mean, I mean, we I, we just got done talking about Munich and or the world's coming out in the same year, 2005
1: Nothing, neither one of them like easy projects.
0: No. To, uh... Then we talked about, we already mentioned both Schindler's List and Jurassic Park came out the same year. He was filming Schindler's List and editing through via satellite with Michael Kahn still back in LA editing Jurassic Park. Probably the most difficult job of his career, emotionally speaking, making Schindler's List in the middle of that. He's actively looking at his biggest popcorn movie he's ever made. And that's breaking breaking filmmaking standards with Jurassic Park. Those two parallels are so wild, but that's his work ethic. Same thing with Tom Cruise. That dude does whatever. Look, you can call him whatever you want. You you look at his personal life, whatever. I don't, I'm not looking at that right now. I'm looking at that as I'm looking at the man as not just. An actor. He's a performer. He's a direct. He's a director. Whether the DJ recognizes it or not, but he's a very collaborative dude. Period. Because he knows what's going to eventually look great when it's being thrown to a cinema. Yep, absolutely. In a lot of ways, this is that that rarity where you have a I don't want to say um, it was a superstar collaboration that usually doesn't fare well, right? Or your doesn't leave, live up to expectations. It doesn't mean pretty good or mediocre, but not, and I'm going to use the word, here, I think it's fucking a great movie, period.
1: Yeah. No, dude, it, it is a great, this is a great movie. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's very little to nitpick. I mean, I, I, you know, for me, I'm nitpicking people's accents. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think that we're not, not only are we never going to have a movie star like Chris, but we're not, we're not going to, going forward, we're not, we're not going to have this kind of directors that, uh, you know, that. Spielberg, Scorsese are, you know, at, at this, even Francis Coppola. We're not going to have, we're not going to have that going forward either. Right. So th- these are like the collaborations of the classic era movies, like when Cary Grant and Hitchcock were teaming up several times to fake film. I mean, it's just, it's just something that's not going to happen. You know, the movie, the movie business is so different, but you know, seeing Spielberg, Steve, what is Spielberg, 76, 77 years old now, still yeah. making... You know, I think he's working. I think there's something going right now that he's prepping. And you right. know, Fableman's just came out last year.
0: Yeah. He was a year when he made my report, he was a year older than I am. Right. Come the fuck on. Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> dude. Right. The idea of going out and making a movie right now and doing what he does and knowing that I also got this other thing going on too, I just, to me, just blows my mind this is another one of those years around every I'm important catch me if you can. It was a, a, a second movie that came out in 2002. So he did that right. And we mentioned terminal earlier terminal, you know, was just like, it was like a buffer. It was like, you know, I'm going to allow him to catch his breath before he did another double dose of war. Of the world of Munich in 2005. So there's two other things that are there in this window of time. One of them, was is always there during that window, Is always there for Spielberg for the most part, except for two movies, and that's John Williams' score. Oh, yeah! But Kaminsky's images in this, <sighs> what he does in this visually, <laughs> is, and what he does in War of the Worlds. This is why I always connect those two movies, even though they came out three years apart, they have a very dystopian visual a- aspect to it. Even though one is the annihilation of the, about the annihilation of the human race by an alien uh, alien invaders, and one of them is is all human based, it's still it has a very similar look. Both movies, and but Kaminsky is like he's he's one again one of those DPs that does whatever the whatever's necessary, and but yeah, he did all that stuff, all that stuff with Spielberg in that window of time from uh, Lost World Jurassic Park. Again, he did it again. Jurassic Park 2 and Amistad were the same year, 97, then Private Ryan and then AI came out and he spent a lot of time and that was like the longest stretch we're talking about the gap between mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, like, is there ever a gap between Cruise and Spielberg where you get one of the two of them at least with the, with the summer movie that was it, that was a window of time because b- between Private Ryan and AI he had a three year gap of of nothing coming out and obviously that was a big undertaking. That was a pretty well-documented AI was a big deal for him. Right. But the truth of, of the matter is these two dudes know the movies that they're making. They know how to, they know what the audience is going to dig. Now, whether the audience shows up is another story that's on the marketing team, but I've never come away from a movie from either one of these guys and didn't think that was, uh, that was okay or great. And it's usually lean more towards the ceiling because these guys, I, yeah, you know, I've never felt cheated. No, no, you never. Yeah, you never feel those things that we've that we of, of the kind of projects we've criticized before. And I shouldn't say cr- cr- criticize. It's such a. I hate using that word sometimes because I don't. It's so. It's such such a harsh word. But and anyway, yeah, these guys are fucking masters at their craft. And it just so happens that they they just got longevity, and we're lucky that we we have. Them Dude, like
1: I'm saying, there's there's no point in our like movie going careers or movie going <laughs> movie watching lives where these two guys haven't been making movies. Right? It's just that simple. Spielberg started a little, for, but you know, for forty years, Tom Cruise has been in movies. You know, if, I mean. Endless Love 81 was his first movie, so he's it's, it's over 40 years, <laughs> right? Taps you go back, losing it, you go back to all those early uh movies, and you know, you think back and you're like, Oh, yeah, well, no, god, that was 40, 42 years ago, yeah. Jaws is creeping up on
0: 50, yeah. about you know? that? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> to, to best describe. We, we talked about his work ethic and, and, and the most recent work ethic that Tom Cruise has is of just doing whatever, you know, let himself hang on the outside of a plane while it takes off 15 to 18 times until he gets the shot that he wants. And the, cor- the current bit he's doing in the new MI movie, the, him putting in the time has been there since the beginning of his career because like, you know, Endless Love and Taps was at 81, but in 83... He did the Outsiders, Losing yep. It, Risky Business, and all the right moves in the same fucking year. Yeah, man. Losing It was a pseudo ensemble, and Outsiders was one hundred percent that he was one. Yeah, of, he was one Steve of many, Randall. one of many. But Risky Business, he's a lead man. All and all, all the, the right moves. moves. He's the lead, the lead. man. And yeah. eighty fucking three. Yep, forty years ago. When you see that, you you have to look at. At Paul Brickman of casting him in risky business as the guy that really changed the trajectory of Tom Cruise's career, yeah, he's a fucking film star, he's a movie star, and they are they are two different things. <laughs> They're two different things, and you know what he is too. He's also somebody that knows how to prop up another performer and help them get them as an Oscar. He did that two years in a row with Rain Man and with Color of Money.
1: I was gonna say you were gonna say Cocktail. <laughs> Look, dude, I love cocktail. Don't fucking. I'm not shitting on it. I like it.
0: Let me go back real quick. I mean, I'm. Whether that an episode or not, I don't know because we're already at an hour. You you mentioned your favorite performance from, and I agree. I can't. I can't even attempt to argue that what he does in Born the Fourth isn't the best performance he's ever had. I think that was as close as he's ever going to get to a performer Oscar, and I don't yeah. think you know. I don't think he's ever going to get that again. I'll get an it, honorary. Yeah, he's he's somebody that. It could, but he, that's the thing is I don't think he cares. No, don't think he cares at all. He cares about entertaining the world. He doesn't care about the, that, that's the irony is that, look, I mean, should we be surprised at the guy that hangs himself outside of an airplane for the sake of a project that he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to do that shit. Nobody needs to do that, but he does it. He does it because he knows the spectacle and how it carries across in a movie. Right. He's a on-camera performer that just knows so much about the ins and the outs behind the camera too. That just makes his projects excel and make them all not just watchable, but usually, you know, getting closer to the ceiling, as I said earlier. Yeah. Right. Dude. Yes. I told you it was going to be a love fest.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. So look, would you say sometimes in order to see the light, you have to risk the dark? Stop that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, Doctor Iris Heinemann. Uh, yeah, like man. Uh, again, the, well, it, this is the thing. You know, it's the Boys of Summer. I would hope that it's, that's what it is because these are movies that are supposed to be fucking fun and inspiring and like these are the movies that you go out to see in June and you know this is what you expect. This is what you expect when you talk about right the Boys of Summer. You know the the first two movies again. They they when I saw them. Yes, sure, but there, there were holes in them then. This movie. Not so much. And also of this, this movie is at another level. Oh, yeah. And I think the next two are also just another level from those two movies. Right. Like the, the creative teams uh, behind them. Right. So, with right. that being said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close my book.
0: So, if you veered back with us after, <laughs> after last week's episode, uh, no, I honestly, do. I, this, the, 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 these, the first two movies in this movie are exactly what we talked about before, and that they're they're popcorn movies. I mean, in that order, they're summer movies, and it's proof that some, not all, summer movies, farewell. But as much as we enjoyed them, then we, they were like what twenty five year old us, and then thirty year old us, right? As far as the, uh, the 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 previous two movies, this is only two years after the one of them, and it's it's. Here it is 21 years later, and it's still fucking phenomenal. It's such a great fucking movie. And I want my damn 4K already. I feel like movies like this, but again,
1: this also going back, not to defend the other two movies, but again, both of those films, one of them being a comedy, which I think I said it nine times, uh, comedies don't always hold up for me, so it's hard for me to judge fairly comedies because the style falls out of fashion. Like I'm sure if I watched police Academy right now, maybe it's not as funny as I remember it. So I'm just saying, and then the other one, I, I feel like, you know, it's almost, it's, it's a gimmick movie. Like we had talked about in April. The only thing it's not on the level of the ones that we covered, right? The gimmick there's, there's so many flawed elements in that film that, you know, by the time you realize what the gimmick is, you're like, I don't really care. So, uh, you know, it, and again, it felt cookie cutter. This is a true summer movie. Yep. There, there's not another time that Minority Report would have been released outside of the summer. Nobody's ever no. going to mistake this for, you know, hey, we'll release it in September. Or, hey, maybe we'll release this round award. This is not an awards type movie. Nope. It is a pure popcorn summer blockbuster by the two biggest boys of summer who I think we're going to talk about. But we'll see because we got two more weeks.
0: <laughs> it's true. We do. This movie... When it comes out, it's going to come out just a slim four days before its premiere in 2002. How's that shit? Yeah, there you go. Timing's everything, my friend. Again, if you want your 4K, which I do, hit up Disney because this is a Fox movie. Another another rarity, by the way, for for Tom Cruise making a Fox movie.
1: What's weird is also it it was on Paramount+. Plus.
0: Yes. Is where I watched it. That's where I watched it too. Yeah. Because I didn't want to get out the movie. I want my 4K, damn it. See, I know I said it five times now. Say it into a mirror. But I kept thinking, you know, because he his movies were so synonymous with Paramount. I kept thinking, it's Paramount, it's Paramount. It's Paramount. Put it out. And it's not. It's fucking Vox. Yeah, I was shocked that it wasn't Paramount or Universal. And then, okay, let's and we talk about, let me let me throw it out with this one more thing. Two hours and twenty-five minutes. Breezy to 25. two twenty-five. It doesn't even feel two hours. No. It's so fucking it there's plenty of movies that are out there that are two and a half or even three hours or even just a solid two that are never, they're always engaging, but there's sometimes, but it's not, it doesn't make it any less laborious because it's still two fucking hours. Nope. This, this does not feel like a two and a half hour movie. Never nope. does. Never, ever, ever.
1: The other thing I will say about this in closing is, is it the, the effects, the visual effect, the, the visual, mm-hmm. none of it. Time has been kind to this. It hasn't. Uh, it hasn't hurt it a bit. Right. I'd love to see this in a on a big screen.
0: Yeah. I, and I love the plasma guns, by the way. The the yeah. sound wave guns, fucking, oh, yeah. it's still so fucking cool. That's what's so great about him. End up killing a guy with a traditional gunpowdered weapon. I love that trajectory weapon like that. It just. This is one of those times where we like a movie so much we can't stop talking about it. That we don't. Right. I mean, we haven't had one of those before. I don't think. No. Yeah. No. I'm done. So, if you want to follow us on the socials, the show is at Karate Pod on Twitter, Insta, and Letterboxd. If you want to follow Corey on Letterboxd, it's Corey underscore Cope, and on Insta, it's Culprit97.
1: If you'd like to follow me, you can follow me at Rock and Roll 33 on your Instagram, or you can follow me at Director Lamar Burgess at Letterboxd.com. That's Director Lamar Burgess, a.k.a. Maximin Seidau, at Letterboxd.com.